I didn't know what page that's on. If you're using the 188. Okay, so if you're using the seat Bibles, you'll find it on page 188. When I was a, a fairly new Christian, I was taught that I was supposed to share my faith uh, by talking to other people about how they could be saved through Jesus. Somehow, though, I, I mistakenly got the idea in that that to do so, I had to be like a salesperson. Um, that I had to find creative ways to insert Jesus into every conversation, and that um, I had to then take every opportunity to close the deal, to um, challenge those I talked to to commit their life to Christ on the spot. And the problem was, that wasn't me. Um, I, I'm a better listener than a talker, and so uh, steering conversations according to my agenda isn't something I'm very good at. And um, I'm definitely not a salesperson in the sense that, that I appreciate people as people, not as projects or as potential customers. Um, so I always felt a lot of guilt and pressure around this idea of evangelism. But then somewhere along the line, I realized that I didn't have to be those things to share my faith, that I could just be myself. I happen to be a person who loves Jesus. And so if I'm just myself, then Jesus naturally comes up in my relationships with others. And uh, when it does, it, it's, it's authentic and it's natural. It's not some, of for, some sort of forced, awkward, agenda-driven thing. And I think we get some hints about being ourselves like this in today's story as we look again at the lives of Ruth and Boaz. Last Sunday, Greg Howe pointed out to us that Ruth is a story about two people, Ruth and Boaz, who play significant roles in furthering God's mission. Because uh, Ruth is a story which takes place in the scriptures right after the book of Judges and right before the book of Samuel. That is, or, or this time in history is, is a hinge point in the story of, of God's people. It's the period of history when the tribes of Israel were ruled by various tribal judges or tribal leaders called judges, not like today's judges, they were leaders. Um, but that period of history was coming to an end and God was preparing to give them a king named David, a man after God's own heart through whom the tribes would would be united into one a great nation, a, a nation which would be a blessing to the surrounding nations, showing through their life, through their nation, through their worship, what a great God they served. And, and in the, the, um, the last story of, of the chapter of Ruth, chapter 4, if you read ahead, we learn that Ruth and Boaz wind up being the great-grandparents of David, this king who's coming. So they wind up playing a huge role in God's story, God's mission, working itself out as God's people transition from a group of unruly and often godless tribes to one unified nation under the Lord, blessing the surrounding nations. So let's review the story and see the role that Ruth and Boaz are going to play in this bigger story. Remember, Ruth is the daughter-in-law of Naomi. Um, as Greg reminded us through, through the poem he read, um, Naomi and her husband and their two sons had fled from Israel during a time of famine, and they'd gone to the land of Moab, a foreign land, and even a hostile land. And there Naomi's husband um, and now grown sons had died, leaving Naomi with two Moabite daughter-in-laws who her sons had married there in Moab. 
And when Naomi then returns to Israel after the famine, one daughter-in-law stays in her homeland, but Ruth faithfully clings to Naomi and insists on going back with her. So Naomi and Ruth return together to Naomi's hometown, Bethlehem, right at harvest time. And Naomi is grieving. She's, she's bitter. Um, if she was alive today, I'm pretty sure she would be diagnosed as clinically depressed. And after all, she, she's lost everything. She's lost her husband. She's lost her sons. And in a world which lacked opportunities for women back then and also lacked a welfare system, not only did Naomi and Ruth lack a source of income, but they also had little hope of getting jobs either. So how are they going to survive? Well, God, through his law in the Hebrew scriptures, had a means of provision for just such people as Ruth and Naomi, for widows, for orphans, for foreigners. You see, God commanded his chosen people, the Israelites, to care for the poor and the needy among them. And one way they were to do this was to not harvest their fields too carefully, but to leave the edges and the leftovers and whatever dropped so that those in need could come along and pick up after them. And this was called gleaning. And God also instructed family members to take care of their relatives. So a male relative was to provide for and uh, to protect the poor and the vulnerable of his family by making sure they had land, that land, if they had to sell it to survive, stayed in the family so they could continue to benefit from it. And um, also by taking any widow in the family um, as a wife or an additional wife so that she could be provided for. Now, I know that sounds really weird to us today, but in that sort of culture, that was an appropriate and a very generous and um, hospitable thing to do because there's no other way that the women in that culture could be uh, cared for. Now, of course, you can imagine these laws were not always kept for a number of reasons. And the temptation is always there, right, to look after number one to do what it takes to get ahead yourself and to let others worry about themselves, never mind what God's word says. Well, here are Naomi and Ruth back in Israel. They're uh, destitute, they're vulnerable. Naomi is grieving, she's in despair. Ruth is, is vulnerable, not only is she a young woman without a man to protect her and don't think everyone was a gentleman back then, but Ruth's also a widow and on top of that, she's a foreigner. She's got three strikes against her. Well, despite her problems, Ruth knows that she has got to find food. And so she offers to go out and try to find some farmer who obeys the laws of gleaning who will let her glean in his field. She pushes past her own grief and her own sense of hopelessness and probably her fear that she might be taken advantage of. Well, it just so happens that Ruth chooses the field of a rich, powerful man named Boaz. And Boaz just happens to be a male relative of Naomi, one of the men responsible for Naomi's protection and provision, called a guardian redeemer or a kinsman redeemer in the Bible. Ruth starts gleaning in Boaz's field. And, and later that morning, Boaz arrives. He greets the harvesters. The Lord be with you. They reply, the Lord bless you. Now, this is strange language even for the Bible. I mean, sure, we, we read about people greeting each other this way in worship services at the temple, but seldom at work on a weekday. Is Boaz a particularly godly man, 
Or is he just overly pious? You know, some people are always spouting off religious words, but it's all a phony show. Well, time will tell what sort of man Boaz is. The next thing we see is that Boaz notices Ruth right away. Who's the new girl in town, he asks the foreman. Is she with anyone? And the foreman explains, no, just her mother-in-law, Naomi. She's a foreigner from Moab of all places. She asked to glean here in your field, and she's been working hard all morning. So right away, Boaz learns that Ruth is available and that she's a hard worker. And that may not say much to us men today. When it comes to the female mystique, we value beauty and we value personality. But back then, they valued practicality and strength and hard work. And so we learn that Ruth has character and that she's attractive. And so Boaz hurries right over to her. My daughter, he says, he was significantly older than she. Listen, don't go glean in any other field. Stay here with the young women who work for me. I have told the young men to keep their hands off of you. And whenever you're thirsty, have a drink from the jars the young men have filled. That way you can spend more time here and you won't have to wander off in search of water. Well, Ruth was taken aback at this kindness. Remember, she doesn't know who Boaz is. Is he just um, a super generous guy? Um, Is he making a pass at her? So she carefully probes. She says, why have I found favor in your eyes? Why did you notice me? I'm only a foreigner. And Boaz responds, I've heard the stories about you, about all that you've done for your mother-in-law since your husband died. How you left the security of Moab to to come live with us, a people you didn't know. May the Lord richly repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Wow. These may well have been the first kind words Ruth has heard in a long time. And and she was moved. She was touched in, in, in some deep place. And so as demurely as this spunky girl could, she expressed what she was feeling to Boaz. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, sir? You have spoken to my heart. I feel comforted, and yet I don't have the standing of one of your servant girls. Well, later that morning at lunchtime, Ruth was sitting off by herself, and Boaz's thoughts turned to her again. Come on over and sit with us, he says. Join in our family meal here. Have some bread. The dip is good. Try it. Then he gave her a large helping of roasted grain, more than she could eat. And when she'd finished and had gone back to work, Boaz spoke to his young men, let her come and glean among the sheaves. Don't scold her. In fact, pull out some stalks for her to make her job easier. Boaz is being extra generous here, and he's not now doing it for show in Ruth's presence, but he's doing it behind her back. He's caring for her. So Ruth gleaned all that afternoon, and then at the end of that long, hot day, she threshed the kernels out of the barley stalks, and she wound up, would you believe it, with a huge 30-pound sack full of barley. And she hefted it home, and she entered the house, and when Naomi saw how much she had, her eyebrows raised. Well, Well, that's enough food for a week or two for both of us. Ruth adds excitedly, and that's not all. He gave me lunch too. Here, I saved the leftovers for you. And Naomi inquires, where did you glean today? Blessed is the man who noticed you. And as they fixed dinner, Ruth chatted to her mother-in-law all about it and uh, all about this man. And she ends, the name of the man where I worked 
is Boaz. Ha, the Lord bless him, Naomi says. He has not, show, not stopped showing his faithful love to the living and to the dead. That man is our close relative. He's one of our kinsmen redeemers. He's a relative who has a responsibility to help us, to protect us, to provide for us. So that's how Ruth and Boaz meet. And the story along the way raises as many questions as it eventually answers. What kind of man is Boaz? Is he as righteous as he seems or is he just full of religious hot air? And why did he notice Ruth right away? And what kind of, um, or, or why was he so kind to her? Is, is he a womanizer or, or, or just a man who has a way with the ladies? Or is he a generous person who genuinely cares for the needy? Or is he more than one? As the story goes on, we get some answers. We find out that Boaz is a man of character. Yet in chapter 3, we'll learn he's also a man in search of a wife. And his motives may not always be completely pure, but his motives are good. And, and Ruth, Moabite women had a reputation for being seductive. And there's a chance that that's how people viewed her as, as available. And Ruth certainly wasn't a wallflower, but Ruth proves to be a, a woman of character too, a, a hard worker, sacrificially faithful to her mother-in-law. So the story doesn't insist that Boaz and Ruth are perfect. It, it gives us reason to wonder about some of their hidden motives. After all, we're all a mix of motives, right? But the story does show that both Ruth and Boaz have character, that they ha- have in common that they're normal, imperfect people with strong character. Boaz is generous. He uses his power and position to care for those in need. And Ruth is faithful, and she's hardworking, though God has given her nothing but trouble. She still has breath in her lungs and strength in her body, and she uses what she has to take care of those she loves. Yet while, while Ruth and Boaz are similar in that they both have character, at the same time, they couldn't be more different from each other. Boaz is an insider. He's, he's a man of status. He's a powerful and wealthy leader in his community. While Ruth is an outsider, she's an unknown foreigner, and she's impoverished, vulnerable, unprotected, without a voice, someone who people no doubt view with suspicion. Yet God, God uses both of them. God uses the wealthy man of status and he uses the needy, powerless woman. As they make good decisions in their everyday lives, which flow from their character, as they treat the people around them lovingly and graciously, uh, faithfully and generously, God weaves both of these people into his bigger story. And so I think the point of this passage, this story for us is this. Who we are matters to God's story. Who you are matters to God's story. God used Ruth because she was Ruth. Even in her poverty, even though she was a foreigner with seemingly little to offer. And God used Boaz because he was Boaz. Even though he couldn't be more different from Ruth, he was rich, he was powerful. 
And as Ruth and Boaz, different as they were, both lived their lives each day facing the challenges, facing the opportunities before them, we see that God incorporated both of them into his mission. Who we are matters to God's story. So, be yourself and become yourself. Be yourself and become yourself. Be yourself. Don't try to be someone God hasn't made you. Just as Ruth just so happened to find herself gleaning in Boaz's field, unless you have reason to suspect otherwise, you can trust that God has put you where he wants you. And that God can use your genuine weaknesses, your unique experiences, as well as your strengths to further his story. And just as Boaz was going about his business, supervising the barley harvest, expect that God can use you where he has put you day by day. But don't just be yourself. Become yourself as well. What I mean is become the person that God is trying to make you into. Work on your character. Grow. (laughs) God could use Ruth because she was utterly faithful. She was sacrificial. She was a hard worker, not a princess. And God could use Boaz because he was generous and hospitable. Boaz knew that God hadn't given him his wealth and status for his own sake, but so that he could be a blessing to others. Do you have that kind of character? If not, become yourself. Get working on it. That's who God is seeking to make you into. Become your true self. Become the person God is seeking to grow you into becoming. Because who you are and who I am matters to God's story. Let me close with with this story. It's told by um, Dwight Roberts in his book, You Are God's Plan A. He writes, uh, it's a great book, by the way, if you want to read it. It's full of inspiring stories along these lines. Years ago, he writes, I I spoke in the Dominican Republic for a ministry that works with American kids struggling with behavioral problems. One of the kids named Lance approached me after one of my teaching sessions and asked if he could talk with me. He shared that, or he shared what had been happening in his life that week, and clearly God was lighting a fire in his heart. Lance explained that he had entered the program not because he was rebellious or had broken the law like many of the other kids, but rather his parents had asked him to enter the program so he could gain more structure and discipline in his life. I've gotten a lot out of my time here, Lance said, but now I'm thinking it may be time to go home because I want to help people learn more about God. Maybe I could make a bigger difference in the lives of my old friends back home. What do you think? Well, you might be right, Dwight replied, but is it possible that God is giving you a temporary assignment while you're still here? Is it possible that he wants to use you to minister to kids right here while you're with them? His eyes lit up as I continued to share with him a vision for this temporary assignment. That's it, he exclaimed suddenly. There is something that I can do for other kids while I'm still here. I know things about their lives their parents don't know, stuff not even our staff knows. I'll pray for them and and I'll talk with them as God leads. Dwight, some of them are pretty messed up. I hope I can help. Over the next few days, 
uh, Dwight continues, Lance and I chatted about his newfound purpose. I gave him a book on prayer and we prayed together for some of the other kids from his dorm, including a kid named Chris who, was profe- who professed to be an atheist. After I left, Lance and I continued to write back and forth. And in one letter, he wrote how Chris had announced at the dinner table that he was no longer an atheist. Unfortunately, that was the last letter I received from Lance. A few weeks later, one of the program administrators called me on the phone. Are you sitting down? She asked. There's been an awful tragedy. A group of boys from one of the dormitories were swimming in the river, and a flash flood suddenly swept three of the boys downstream, including Lance. We couldn't rescue him in time. Dwight, I'm sorry to tell you, Lance is dead. I sat in stunned silence. The administrator paused for a moment and then continued. Dwight, there's more I want to tell you. As we were cleaning out Lance's locker, we came across some things you sent him, encouraging letters and a book about prayer. The book had highlights and notes all through it. We also found his prayer journal, and we were amazed at how many kids and situations he was praying for. We've been piecing together a lot of recent things that have been happening as a result of Lance's prayers. She went on to share specific answers to prayers. Discouraged staff members ready to give up experienced new strength and joy and purpose in their work. Students struggling for years with emotional and spiritual issues showed new signs of growth and victory. Even some of the most troubled kids experienced major breakthroughs in their attitudes and behaviors. Now we realize that Lance prayed for those needs, she said, and God answered his prayers. We're amazed, single-handedly, a teenage kid impacted our program, staff, and students through his prayers. Several weeks later, I learned that five kids gave their lives to Christ at Lance's funeral. One of them was Chris, the former atheist. He had watched Lance's life more closely than anyone realized. He experienced God's love through Lance before he even believed God existed. Who Lance was mattered to God's story. Who you are matters too. So be yourself and become yourself.